Hello, everyone. This is Cassie Burns, co-founder of All Your Data. I'm an attorney who's been using AI and machine learning for 10 years. I love data and love talking to people about data, and that's what this podcast is about. Each episode of Cassie and will feature a new guest. Each guest comes from a different background with a different approach and attitude towards technology. We'll talk about their experiences and hopefully we'll learn a thing or two. Thanks for joining. Let's get started with Cassie and Professor Ed Lee. Professor Lee, thank you so much for joining us here today. Um, Seriously, (laughs) well, Professor Lee, I usually ask people how we know each other, but I'm going to tell people how I know you because I think that's probably more appropriate. I found you on LinkedIn, which is how I found or got connected with a lot of my guests. But you had written this book called Creators Take Control, and I instantly had to buy it and read it. That's how we met each other and we started talking on on LinkedIn, and I love all your content. So, well, that being said, now that I know I've told the audience how we know each other, because uh, I'm that annoying person that will just like talk to strangers and they're nice enough to indulge me. Tell me a little bit about you and, and let the audience know about you. Well, I'm a professor of law at Chicago Kent College of Law. And let's say one of my passions is the intersection of technology, especially the internet and IP laws. In fact, I went into academia so I could write about the internet when the internet, and this was the time of Napster, not to date myself, but the time when Napster was going on, I just found it so fascinating and anticipated that the law would have to confront all of these difficult issues in the future as the internet evolved. And sure enough, that's true. And now with AI, that's definitely even probably more so having to confront a lot of these issues. And the book is sort of related to my interest in technology and its disruption to the law, but it's also related to my interest in art. I do photography kind of on the side as one of my passions. And I think that experience enabled me to understand perhaps what was going on with NFTs more so than maybe some of my colleagues in academia. So that's sort of how I entered into the NFT rabbit hole, so to speak. I think a lot of people go down the rabbit hole and they they never really come out. They do all this research. And the one quick remark I should make about LinkedIn, and which is funny about how we met, there is a community called NFT LinkedIn because there are a lot of professionals who started becoming interested in this new technology at the time. NFTs. And there's a lot of discussion daily on LinkedIn. And then also the other big community is called NFT Twitter. That communi- that sort of community tends to be a little bit more no holds barred discussion <laughs> fitting for uh, Twitter than LinkedIn. But that just shows you some indication of how disruptive this technology was, let's say in 2021, when it exploded on the scene. I'm definitely an observer of NFT Twitter and crypto Twitter, and they definitely have more spicy hot takes than maybe we see on LinkedIn. But I I like dipping between them. Again, I, I tend to get on Twitter more to read than engage with people, but I think it really helps with the echo chamber 
quite a bit. People will will definitely criticize and be a little bit maybe less uh, gracious to other people on Twitter, whereas LinkedIn, it is a little bit more collegial. And I think it's good having that difference as you're trying to just navigate these waters, because I think a lot of these new technologies, there's either extreme criticism or rose-colored glasses. This is going to create a utopia. This is going to solve all of our problems. And it's, of course, somewhere in the middle. So I found that to be very useful. But I have a question for you. I, going back to hearing your background and you, you wanted to be a professor because you saw the emerging internet and things like Napster. Back those years ago, which is probably about the time I went to law school, did you have any inkling? Were, were you thinking, well, this is just like the first and, and there's going to be another iteration of this, like technology is going to keep going. Did you think that was the big revolution or did you think there will probably be echoes of, of further advances in the future and we'll have to go through the same thing too? Well, I thought at the time the internet was the revolution and the law would have to confront a lot of difficult issues, which I think it still does. At the time, I I was not anticipating, let's say, cryptocurrency, blockchain. There had been discussion about AI for a long time in legal academia, especially my field, intellectual property. And there are articles dating back to 1964 about what to do with works created by AI or computer-generated works more generally. So that that was something that was being discussed for decades. But I, I can't say that I predicted or anticipated the kind of GPT, chat GPT, generative AI abilities. Like this, all the, all the stuff that came out in December 2022 and then since then, uh, is definitely uh, new to me, and uh, I'm following it uh, very closely. It's disruptive and also um, fascinating to see unfold because it, it seems like there's a new version of Midjourney or whatever the platform is every month or two, and there are new functions or capabilities added to it that are just as kind of mind-blowing as the initial version. I don't know if it was Stable Diffusion or Midjourney was able to, once they had an upgrade and the fingers and the hands looked good, I was just like, wow, (laughs) all bets are off at this point. But I do want to talk more about your book again, Creators Take Control. And it really goes through and talks about how NFTs can be a mechanism to drive change in intellectual property rights and really kind of give rights, give, give more ownership and power to the creator. So I'd love for you to give us your take or your summary of this book, which again, it's an excellent book. So would love to hear it. Thank you for your kind review uh, of the book. Uh, As the title uh, indicates, Creators Take Control, One of the major themes of the book is how creators and artists use this new technology of non-fungible tokens. And we could talk more about sort of exactly what that is. Um, Basically, it, it creates virtual ownership is the way that I like to describe it. So creators, especially digital artists, took this new technology and they came up with a way to 
sell their works uh, in and and created a new market essentially a, a new market for digital artwork. The reason why there wasn't a market before this is that every digital copy is basically the same. So if you advertise your artwork on a website, everybody can right click and save it is the common term that people have used to make fun of NFTs. Why would you right. buy that? Because you can right click and save it. But if you dig down deep into what the NFT actually gives the buyer, it is it functions as a unique item, a virtual item, token, so to speak, that has now created a new market for those digital artworks. And if you talk to any digital artist who has used NFTs, they will tell you this. And I try to give several examples of, of artists in the book who suddenly found a way to make a living off of their digital artworks that they weren't able to do before. And going back to your initial comment about you, you're planning on sending this to some of your artist friends, I think one of the things that maybe the, the mainstream America and in other countries as well maybe don't realize is that independent artists have a hard time making it. And there are plenty of surveys. I rely on a couple of surveys in the United States and also globally, independent artists and independent musicians. Basically, most of them have odd jobs to sustain their artistic pursuits. So the attraction of NFTs and the creation of a new market for digital artworks, especially it's been applied to music as well, is the creation of this now unique, scarce token version of the artwork. Uh, and one of the most attractive features, initially at least, and we may talk about this later on, was the ability to seek creator royalties as a part of the sale of the NFT, meaning for every resale of the NFT, the creator could get the median royalty rate was 5% for the top 25 NFT projects. So every resale of a NFT from that artist, if they elected 5%, they would receive 5% from the resale. And that was something that does not exist in the United States. Copyright law, it, it does exist in a resale royalty right, does exist in 80 countries around the world. But for artists in the United States, it does not. So I, I think that was one of the biggest attractions for creators was to use the NFT to establish something that U.S. copyright law did not give them. And uh, I characterize this as a form of decentralized IP. Uh, it was coming up with a technological way to get a royalty that the U.S. copyright law does not provide. The law doesn't grant that right, but you're in essence creating a contractual agreement to flow those funds back. And if you think about it, it, Basquiat, when he was selling his paintings, he was not selling them to the first person, which is how he made his money for millions and millions and millions of dollars. You see these artists maybe sell their works and it increases in value at such a high rate. My husband's an artist. I have, we have a lot of friends that are artists and you I have a lot of empathy and really 
would love to see artists get some of that back. And that's the great thing of the potential, I think, of NFTs, as you talk about in your book, is it minimizes the barrier of entry to self-publishing in a lot of ways. So they're not having to rely on maybe an intermediary. And again, that royalty right flow back is a potential game changer for artists. But we talked about rose-colored glasses, like that ideal is there and I think it's great, but there are some markets that are not necessarily honoring those creator rights. So usually what happens is someone will mint an NFT, which is in essence the first time that that ownership is, is recognized or entered on the ledger or the blockchain. And then any subsequent sale of that asset is done on a secondary market. And it's really those secondary markets that hold a lot of power right now as to whether or not those creator royalties will flow back. Is that right, Professor Lee? Yes. Yes. I mean, what we've seen just in a year, the the space where the market changes so quickly is the shift to the sales volume occurring primarily now on the marketplace blur, which wrested control of the market share over before it used to be OpenSea had the largest market share. And one of the ways in which blur was able to wrest the trade trading volume and get more people to trade on its platform was providing initially zero <laughs> creator royalties to denying the payment of royalties to creators, and now it's a nominal 0.5%, which is far less than the 5% median that NFT projects have sought. And also, Blur has instituted a, a loan program, which you can avoid creator royalties entirely on, on, by effectuating a loan on their platform. The past few months, I think tracing back to December or so, We've seen a dwindling of not only the sales volume generally, because we're in a sort of economic downturn and the markets, I think, generally for collectibles art have receded, have experienced a downturn. But we've seen in the NFT marketplace also the trend is to zero royalties, creator royalties, which I, I think in my view, is unsustainable, right? That is not a sustainable model for creators. And I think it's an unfortunate turn of events in how the past few months have panned out. But I predicted like this is where we were headed when I first learned about the zero creator royalties uh, when they were being instituted. Blur isn't the only one. I don't want to single them out, but there were other marketplaces that adopted it. But since Blur is now the main, has a lion's share of the vo- sales volume, they are definitely the ones uh, dictating a lot of the policy regarding resale royalties. When I first learned about this, you know, I, and others did too, called it a race to the bottom. This is, you're, gonna, you're trying to attract more buyers to your platform and it's eventually going to go to zero, right? The creator royalty is because if you think about it, the seller then gets to keep the 5% that otherwise would have been taken out to pay the creator the royalty. 
And if you think about it in purely self-interest terms, yeah, that sounds attractive, right? But if you think about creativity in general, and we could tie this into the writers and actors strike in Hollywood, talking about compensation for artists, the zero creator royalties model is just not sustainable because how will the artists who entered the space for NFTs be able to weather a financial downturn, right? Like the one we are facing right now. They, they can't, right? It's just not sustainable. And in other art, artistic fields, we no one credibly thinks that they have a right to deny Taylor Swift the payment of royalties to her for the streaming of her songs or the purchase of her music, right? That is just not a credible position to take, that we can choose to deny artists if we want to keep more of the money, you want to save save the, right. the royalty amount. So I think if we think about that in terms of these artists who are visual artists, who are also musicians, some are musicians who are using NFTs, on what basis can we credibly say, I as a consumer or I as the distributor, the marketplace, I have the right to deny their choice, the artist's choice to seek a royalty for their their creations, right? I, I just think that's not a sustainable model. Now, I'm happy to listen to the, the counter arguments and the ones that I reviewed I think just do, do not stand up. I mean, I, I think the the way that the the trading is now viewed makes like the art almost irrelevant. It's like mm-hmm. we're gonna we're gonna trade NFTs to rack up loyalty points on Blur, which makes the art completely irrelevant. I feel the same way. I it, and to me, it creates a philosophical, ethical dilemma. I mean, art is, it it evokes an emotion and and that usually, there's usually an emotional reason why people buy a piece of art, either because they see a Rembrandt or they see Andy Warhol or they see a Banksy and it really resonates with them and they want it. Or there's an acknowledgement that that artist is someone that is so great that they want to buy something that they created. But maybe it's they don't really get it, but they see the market is there. And there's a market acknowledgement of the skill and the ethos of that artist. And that's where the cost should reward that creation that that artist put into the world that we can all benefit from. And to me, the the trading attitude towards the digital assets, it really completely undermines just the whole definition of what art is. So, like the arguments against creator royalties just don't resonate with me at all. Some of them I think are, well, it'll undercut the market, but you know, maybe we can talk about this a little bit more. So, th- there has been a bit of a crash in some what's called blue stock NFT projects that historically have been very high value and they've they've had a precipitous drop lately. And there has been some theory that it could be because of secondary markets like Blur that as you were telling or you were talking about it on LinkedIn, it's nearly like rewarding the behavior of frequent bidding and frequent sales. So it's not even the art that matters anymore. It's just the trading activities. And that in turn 
affected the value of some of these assets. Is that right? Yes. And just for your audience, I think we could classify artwork, NFTs into two. They're sort of like the art that would be shown, could be shown in a museum and at a gallery. And then there are projects that are characterized as so-called PFP or profile picture projects, which tend to be more cartoon figure character artworks. Now, they some of those, like the CryptoPunks, are shown in museums because they are the Mona Lisas of NFTs. But for the projects, the so-called PFP projects, we have seen the floor values for the lowest priced NFT from the collection of, let's say, 10,000 Board A Yacht Club would be the probably the second most famous project next to the CryptoPunks. The floor price is dwindling down to a, a price seen, I think, back in 2021 when they first came out, if not early 2022. And, and the dynamics of the blur bidding, you get points for bidding, making bids on NFTs, even if it doesn't sell. And also for loans, the loan process on Blur. And if part of the dynamic that I think led to exacerbated the downturn in the floor prices was that there are so-called whales who own a lot of uh, NFTs from some of these blue chip collections. If they decide to sell, they decide from the bids that uh, that have been made on this artificially construct, constructed system, then that could dramatically lower the uh, floor price because in some respects, people weren't expecting the whales to sell at that low price because <laughs> they were just racking up points, right? They were just getting credits for blur tokens eventually. So that's, I think I blogged about this earlier, borrowing some of the analysis from people who follow this space closely and who posted things on Twitter to try to understand how that dynamic fed into the lower value of the floor price. Now, we are also in, in general, a downturn. So even irrespective of the effect of the whales and the effect of uh, blur, what's called airdrop farming, we probably would have seen naturally or as a result of the downturn generally in financial markets, a lowering of the floor price. Because, I mean, it reached such a highly speculative, insane value during the boom. But that's not, I think, a reason to necessarily question the viability of the NFT projects, because if it's following what other markets are doing, such as the market for collectibles or the market for art, or even at an earlier point, it was, I think, following a downturn in the stock market. The stock market has rebounded since then. Um, there's a cyclical nature to these, I think, markets for investing in kind of more uh, speculative collectibles. So that's what we're, I think, in part seeing here. The effect of the artificial bidding, I think, perhaps probably uh, exacerbated kind of like the, the volatility. I am currently reading a book called Stoned, and it talks about 
how scarcity in the jewelries and jewels, so like emeralds and diamonds, how that's somewhat manufactured and managed. I, I'm reading it because I see a lot of parallels, of course, with NFTs and digital assets. So all your comments made me think of that. But I want to talk a little bit about something you, you reference frequently in your book and you talk about on your LinkedIn post about us being in the age of a virtual renaissance. And I know we've talked a little bit about NFTs, but let's talk more broadly about IP rights because some NFT projects, like they're being very creative or or not traditional with how they're treating the intellectual properties rights associated with those projects, whether it's the copyright rights or the trademark rights. So can you explain to the to the audience, how you're seeing that evolution take place? Yeah, the the virtual renaissance I see is this rebirth in art and an explosion of creative activity. And NFTs are one component of it because they created this new market for digital art. Hadn't existed before. Now we have it. Sotheby's and Christie's earlier this year, auctioning off digital artwork, NFTs, millions of dollars, perhaps lower than the boom, but still it's a vibrant market. And that's going to, I I think, be here for the long term, a market for digital artworks. And then I would add into this now generative AI with the ability to create visual artworks, video as well, music, et cetera, simply by using text prompts and that will democratize who can be a creator of these sorts of works. Now, AI obviously has a lot of controversies and we can discuss those later, but that will, I think, feed into this explosion of creative activity. The other technological ingredient to this virtual renaissance, I believe now is artificial intelligence and generative AI which has democratized the ability to create a whole sorts of media and artworks, videos, you name it, through simply text prompts. And that will open up creativity or creative production to a wider pool of creators. Now, there are all sorts of controversies regarding copyright and also ethics related to generative AI. We're happy to discuss that as well. But it will definitely result in an increase in the amount of digital artwork or digital content being produced. And that, I think, will define the 21st century, the 21st century's sort of shift in art to recognize digital artworks as a legitimate form, artworks being shown at like MoMA, for instance, already, or LACMA, Saint Pompidou, you name it, these museums have started to include exhibitions related to digital art and also to AI art, notwithstanding the controversy. I mean, it's disruptive. I think that there are parallels to this transformation, and I try to lay these out in the book, to the advent of modern art, especially Cubism and Picasso's and Barack's Cubist approach, which was reviled in the beginning and rejected in the United States, especially. And by the end of the 20th century, modern art prevailed. I I think we're going to see something very similar with respect 
to digital art and also AI art, that will be the defining sort of change or movement in the art world for the 21st century. Now, the other component that I just like to mention briefly about Renaissance is that typically, if we look at past Renaissances, they follow a period of darkness. So you look at the Renaissance and you see this explosion of creativity. There's no surprise that this period of explosion uh, in creativity occurs in the pandemic and after the pandemic, right? The pandemic forced people to interact virtually. And we all know Zoom became a household name very early on in the pandemic. So we interacted in business, schools, and socially, virtually. So it's no surprise that NFTs exploded right during this sort of dark period when we were living virtually. In fact, several of the artists that I interviewed for the book described how they had all this time on their hands during the pandemic, especially the period of lockdown. And the question is, when artists have this free time on their hands, what do they do? Well, they will create. And I think the pandemic is provided a great source of inspiration, motivation for artists to produce more. And I think we are seeing as a result of that, this vibrant market for digital art. I also think that if we think about popular IP more broadly, not just about digital art or maybe traditional studio art, but more broadly in movies and things like that. I'm a Gen Xer. So I remember the nineties being a huge boom of indie movies and there was so much creativity I thought in movies at that time. And I don't want to be like, Oh, well my, back in my day, it was all so much better. I just feel like so much of the IP and so much of the, the, Films that are being produced are getting more centralized and there's a less risk tolerance for new IP. So you see these very large, old established IP properties that they're just like, that's the focus of a lot of the content and a lot of movies that are being made. And I think that a lot of the barriers to entry to create art, whether movies, like how many people have low-grade editing skills now because of TikTok. A lot of people do. And I have a lot of hope that there's a lot of harm that generative AI can can do and, and potentially take work away from people. But I also think it levels the playing field in some ways of for independent artists, there's more opportunity for them to maybe make a movie and get it out or create their art or their music or whatever. So I think that's nearly like a darkness in, I see that dark period also as in lack of really creative, independent art being available to the the masses. I see that's driving some of it too. And I also think that's why TikTok got so popular because there was such an overly curated vibe at Instagram that people were really drawn to the very human, raw, basic vibe of TikTok. And that's what a lot of the 90s independent Dogma 95 style films, it was very like raw and real. And I think that we're gravitated towards that. That's my my thought and my hope as well. Yeah, I think that's a great observation connecting this with the creator economy, so to speak, and content creators, especially on TikTok and other platforms. (laughs) I think the concept of virtual renaissance and my book, sort of more generally, 
tries to raise the question for society, how do we value and support artists? And that's why I refer to the Hollywood strike as an important event to think about these larger questions that your question also raise, raises is with the industry gatekeepers, that tends to be hard for independent artists to find a way to sustain themselves. And that's why I just try to describe this alternative path with a more decentralized art world, which doesn't re rely upon the art gatekeepers, the traditional galleries, the museums, and the auction houses, even though Christie's and Sotheby's have completely embraced NFTs, you don't need them to be able to do what Beeple did, which was starting to sell NFTs on marketplaces, even before he sold on Christie's auction. So he was making millions before even Christie's want to get, get in on the action, so to speak, and had that historic sale for 69 million. Having a more decentralized marketplace has the great potential to be more inclusive for artists. The challenge though is it, it needs some, I think, coordination, sort of a te internal tension with decentralization. You have decentralization completely and let just things pan out the way that the market works. But then we see, like we were talking about the controversy of creative royalties, we see there are dysfunctions in the market, right? That can mm -hmm. occur because different forces, right? So it may not be a sound strategy to think we're going to support artists and be inclusive and allow, let's say, women artists historically have been disadvantaged by the traditional art world. I mean, studies have shown that well-documented... I cite them in my book. So if we want to improve on that, I'm not sure if we just say, okay, well, we'll just leave it to the decentralized market as opposed to entities like LACMA and projects like World of Women, where right. that becomes a little bit more awareness, right? You know, people don't want it, I think, shoved down their throats. But if you're not aware of this is what's going on, there's no way to know that it's a problem. And thankfully, some scholars have done these empir incredible empirical studies on the art world to show the underrepresentation of a lot of different groups, demographic groups, uh, especially women. And that's something that I, I think uh, I try to explain in the book. It does require this greater awareness and recognition that, okay, that's not something we want to continue. And I, I think more generally, I think the book is asking society to think about the importance of art to all of us. There are other books that have been written. There's one that came out um, this past year that I would also recommend, Your Brain on Art, which compiles all of the scholarly research that shows humans benefit from exposure to art, benefit in terms of wellness and health, mental health especially, benefits in terms of toleration, more 
tolerance for people, which is something that we all could use, I think, at this point in history, and tolerance in a more civic-minded nature. Uh, Studies have shown there's a correlation between that. And also for children, our art education has uh, shown a high correlation to uh, better performance in schools. So we have this pretty substantial body of research showing we all benefit from art, even if we're just exposed to it. We don't even have to create it. If that is, how would we try to sort of tap into those benefits more? And what I say in the book, you know, unfortunately, our copyright system hasn't done a very good job in terms of supporting independent artists. And I think the strike that you're seeing in Hollywood is a parallel analogous sentiment is that the creators in Hollywood, the writers and actors are feeling that the way that the studios are running it, they're not getting a a place at the table for streaming royalties. We go back to the royalty debate. we're, We're seeing it in a different context with the Hollywood strike, but they both raise this fundamental question about how much we value artists and creators. And what I argue in the book is that I, I think for the, this initial uh, reception of NFTs, it has provided the potential for a, a far better approach for independent artists than we've seen in the past hundred years. It's something to be hopeful about. What I really appreciate about your book is it's a great tool for me to give people who are traditional artists and maybe NFT skeptics. Like my husband is one of them. I had him I had him on as a guest of my podcast just to hear him talk about it. And I have other friends, again, they're Gen Xers, they're not very much into tech. And I'm just like, this creates so much empowerment and opportunity for you. So so kind of don't get dissuaded by the hype of the negative hype, maybe even around some of the NFTs. It really can be a mechanism for artists to get some of that that control back, some of that power back. It's a great book. I'm so glad you wrote it. And we're here at the end of the episode, Professor Lee. I would love to hear your closing thoughts or, or just general advice you have to artists out there who don't know much about emerging technology. What would you tell them? Well, I would commend my book, first of all, and in part because I think it's important to keep an open mind. And I think artists tend to be more open-minded than lay people, outside-the-box thinkers. But as you just mentioned, NFTs sparked negativity and backlash because they were branded as Ponzi schemes by media. And what I try to do in the book is to explain why that backlash was incorrect and try to drill down on what NFTs really do. And I'm not suggesting in the book that every artist needs to embrace NFTs. I'm trying to raise awareness of how our, especially our copyright system and our, I think our society in general really has not done a good job in trying to figure out ways to support creators, independent artists. And that's why you see the initial enthusiasm by digital artists to NFTs. 
And that's why I think you see a lot of content creators on TikTok, right? Their creative pursuits are being supported by becoming content creators or influencers or people on YouTube, Mr. Beast, et cetera. There's an alternative model outside of the traditional media to support their creative pursuits. My book is focusing on the model or models. It's actually several models established by NFTs to enable creators to take control of their sort of financial sustainability. Now, there's it's been only a couple years since this market really has opened up or bloomed. And it really leaves us the sort of challenge of either supporting it or not. I think that's the lesson of the modern art, the birth of modern art in the 20th century. The United States hated, by and large, modern art in the beginning. Picasso's works did not sell for at least a decade, if not more, in the United States. It sold in other countries. But it, what it took for modern art to prevail in the United States was a couple sort of key supporters here and there and who are more open-minded to recognize the potential for it. And one of them is, I don't discuss this in the book, but one of the key figures was an attorney. And this is why I bring it up because I think you'll like this. John Quinn, he was a finance attorney. Uh, he wasn't doing IP law, he was doing finance. But And he lived in New York. And he at one point had the greatest collection of modern art in the United States because nobody else was really buying it. But what he saw in it was this energy. He called it a radium. There, there was something disruptive about it and exciting about it. So he was going to support it. And he supported it not just by collecting it, but he petitioned Congress to repeal a tax, a tariff, on the importation of modern art. Uh, and only the old master's artworks were exempt from that tariff. So he got that repealed, which was important to, to create a market in the United States. He also wrote a New York Times op-ed to refute the, there was a propaganda pamphlet that was circulated at one of the early exhibitions at the Metropolitan Museum of Art for modern art. And they basically said this modern art will lead to degeneracy in society. But he, yeah, if <laughs> people today would not believe how much modern art was reviled in the, the United States was one of the worst culprits of this So a narrative. It's kind of like NFTs or Ponzi schemes are sort of like mm -hmm. modern art will lead to the degeneracy of society. We need to reject it. John Quinn writes a New York Times response to this, and that helped to diffuse some of the backlash because it was a prominent newspaper in New York around the time of this exhibition. My final message is, is that I hope artists will consider how this NFT uh, technology uh, might support artists, and even if artists don't use it themselves, at the very least, understand why maybe digital artists are using it. And then in terms of people in general, 
uh, I would say I would try to convince you to support artists more. And that doesn't mean necessarily you have to buy an NFT. But what, what I've said to in my book talks is all you have to do is like their artwork on social media, like Twitter especially, because that's where digital artists are posting their work because they need to develop their networks. And that's one of the advantages of social media. So liking their artwork on Twitter has the effect of potentially increasing their visibility because of the algorithm. More engagement will elevate their posts on social media. Even if you're not going to be an art investor, to the extent that you appreciate art and want to discover some of these new digital artists, you know, check them out on Twitter and just hit that heart like button on Twitter. And that goes a long way. You may not think it goes a long way, but it does. And I, I think that's at the very least a way to support artists. I agree completely. And, I, and even if our audience, you're not into to Twitter, TikTok has a really great art community. I, I even, a birthday gift for my husband, I created a TikTok account for him and built it up to a thousand followers. And I gave it to him on his birthday. And for him, the impact of, he's never been in studios because he's just like very introverted, but to see that kind of feedback from people who didn't even know him, it was very, very motivating, very empowering. So like you said, I love dislike, comment even. People really appreciate that. So whether it's Twitter or TikTok or Instagram, I think that's really great advice, Professor Lee. My advice to the audience is get the book, Creators <laughs> Take Control. You. It's a Again, it's a really great book. And I like supporting people in my community. Professor Lee, I see you as someone in my community. It's Again, it's a great book. Thank you so much for joining us today, Professor Lee. I know I definitely learned more than a thing or two, and I'm sure my audience did. And audience, thank you so much for joining this episode of Cassie, and I hope you stick around for the next episode. Thank you so much, Cassie, for having me on. It's been a pleasure chatting about art and NFTs, favorite, well, my favorite you. topics. We can nerd out about it all the time. My husband will appreciate not having to be the one that is the recipient of that conversation. So um, thank you very much. All right. Bye. Bye.